This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. If you watch the TV series Succession, and thought the drama, rivalries, and greed were sensational just-for-TV fiction and couldn't possibly ever really happen, you will be surprised to learn that the salacious activities and greed and corporate malfeasance of the real-life media empire, Viacom and CBS, controlled by Sumner Redstone, along with a stunning array of lovers, lawyers, corporate boards, and Hollywood types could easily be next season's script. James Stewart and Rachel Abrams bring us the story that almost unraveled Paramount Global, an empire that included Paramount, CBS, MTV, Nickelodeon, Showtime, and the publisher Simon & Schuster. It's a crazy story. But Stewart and Abrams bring their award-winning journalistic and research skills to tell us this shocking tale. This latest book from Mr. Stewart, Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy, does what his previous nine best-selling award-winning books have done. Take the story behind the headlines Give them life, give them context, give them even more details, and deliver a riveting tale that leaves us breathless and stunned. James Stewart, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. (laughs) Well, it's quite a book. You know, first, I want to congratulate you and Rachel Abrams, who can join us for this incredible book. Literally, my jaw remained dropped for almost all of the, there's almost 400 pages. I just, I I was like, every page had something that I thought couldn't possibly be true. So here's what I thought we would do. There are an incredible array of characters. So for listeners that may not be as obsessed with the story as you are and I am, Let's lay the groundwork by talking about some of the key people. So, obviously, we'll start with Sumner Redstone. So, where did he come from? How did he manage to build this empire? And how complicated a creature was he? Well, there's no question. Sumner Redstone is the patriarch of this story. He created the media empire, now known as Paramount Global, Like so many very hardworking, ambitious, driven business people, he grew up in modest circumstances. He went to Boston Latin. He got a scholarship to Harvard. He was a whiz of a student. He learned Japanese, and he worked in the military decoding Japanese cables during World War II. But he was not well socialized. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, but there's enough in there about his relationship to his mother that made it clear that mm. she was a dominant force in his young life. And he never dated anyone. I don't think he had any kind of normal romantic life. Until he married Phyllis? Until he married Phyllis. And he began philandering almost immediately after that. I mean, he certainly at a relatively early age, started making up for lost time. Mm. So he had, you know, I would say, you know, 
awkward and difficult relationships from women starting almost from the beginning. Yeah. But that didn't get in the way. I mean, everybody in his prom, he was incredibly smart and he was ruthless and he, no detail went unnoticed by him. He would memorize, you know, he got his start in the in the movie business because he had owned some drive-in theaters, which he then built into multiplexes. He he took credit for having kind of invented the multiplex, but he would memorize the weekend box office at every single one of the theater chains. As Michael Milken was to junk bonds, Sumner was to box office at the movie business. And he then gradually expanded from there. He borrowed money. He worked with Milken, other Wall Street financiers. He borrowed the money. And he was a ruthless competitor. And this was in the beginning of when leveraged buyouts were done, right? He began to assemble this empire. You know, first it was Viacom, then he added CBS. And then the crown jewel for him was when he got the Paramount movie studio. Imagine starting, running drive-in movie theaters with the occasional second or third run show on there to getting to the point where you own the studio. But one thing I think is worth recognizing, he was 76 by the time he came to Hollywood as a mogul. Wow. It took a lifetime to build this empire. And he was, you know, up there in years when he left his familiar grounds of Boston and New York and moved into a mansion in Hollywood. And things began to spiral out of control very quickly. So if you think about, I mean, this story was in the news Constantly, by the time he was in his late 80s and there was a battle for who was controlling Viacom, CBS, and his vast fortune. So at the beginning of the book, I mean, the array of women that were the legit women, I'm going to (laughs) say, meaning he either married them or dated them publicly is sort of stunning all by itself. But there was a—sadness might not be the right word, but there was a deterioration about him as the story starts. Describe what condition he was in, what was going on, where was he? Yeah, so he, as he did age, like, you know, most people, his faculties declined somewhat, and both his physical condition and his mental acuity became— increasingly affected. And some of that is rather sad. We we did get confidential medical analysis of his condition. I think people who have wondered about this will find that very, very interesting. That, mm-hmm. that really does show the extent of the mental deterioration, which made him very vulnerable, vulnerable. to the influence of other people, and particularly these women who claimed to love him. But now, speaking of women in the story, I don't want to ignore his daughter, yeah, Sherry that to me Ritson, is a because great story. She is really, for me, the, she's the person who sets this plot in motion when, because of these women who began to exert increasing influence on him, she felt compelled to get involved in the Redstone family business again. I mean, he, I, I said he had difficult relationships with, you know, women. Well, he had even worse relationships with his family. This is where the succession parallels are, you know, even go beyond succession. I mean, his son was completely estranged. He humiliated him. The son left the business, disappeared, moved to Colorado, had no contact with whatsoever. And he was horrible to his daughter, Sherry. He would occasionally praise her only to then knock her down and publicly humiliate her and humiliate her in front of the board members. This constant 
push and pull of like, well, yes, I love you or I care about you and you, you know, you're great, but then, oh, you're terrible, you're not qualified. And he wrote an open letter to Forbes magazine disparaging his daughter. And when she read it, she, she you know, she, she burst in tears. into tears. I mean, she often was in tears. It was a, a very difficult situation. And she didn't really want to have anything to do with it. She had her own uh, venture capital business. She was a lawyer. She had her own life. She had, you know, Kids. her children. And she didn't want to be dragged into this. But given the situation that develops, he's now in Hollywood, not just one, but two paramours moved into the mansion with him and started increasingly exerting their control, she felt she had really no choice. If the companies, the businesses, and the family legacy were to be saved, there was no one to step in except her. And that's really what sets this whole plot in motion. Yeah, so that's that's great because I want to come back at some point to Shari because, you know, when the battle began at CBS and Viacom a little bit later in the book, she was depicted in such a cruel way. And when I read the book, you know, I like wanted to hug her and tell her, you know what? Your father did love you. You know, that she just, because he was so cruel to her, publicly cruel to her, and yet, when the time came and he needed to be taken care of at the end by somebody who really did have his best interest, it was her. But I want to take a minute, James, because the characters, I'm calling them characters, but they were real people. <laughs> They're real people. Of Manuela Herzer and Sidney Holland was such a shocking instance of greed and elder abuse and just mean-spiritedness. So describe who these women are, what they did, and what they got away with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is where the story just is, it's so astonishing. Once Sumner moved to Hollywood, it's like he started to lose his bearings out there. His, his grandson, Brandon, moved out there to work at MTV and was witnessing what was going on there. And, you know, Sumner was dating, you know, women in their late teens and early 20s. He I mean, was like stealing his girlfriends, right? Stealing his grandson's girlfriends yeah. and embarrassing his grandson and, you know, giving them millions of dollars and getting them jobs, you know, inappropriately at his controlled companies or in the case of the singing group, like he had a whole MTV reality show made about them. Again, it's stranger than fiction. But I think Brandon in particular and the family generally decided we have to do something about this. this is spinning out of control. So it was Brandon's idea to go to Patty Stanger, the, the millionaire right? matchmaker of reality TV fame. <laughs> Again, you couldn't make this yeah. up. And she introduced him to this woman, Sydney Holland. Now, Sydney Holland had her own somewhat, you know, her past is, <laughs> is pretty interesting. She'd been through a husband. She'd gone out with older men. Um, she'd fallen on hard times financially. So she took to Sumner immediately, and their relationship flowered. Eventually, As he, a couple. As a couple, yes. As a romantic couple, they supposedly took long drives along the beach. They listened to Frank Sinatra singing My they Way. They loved each other. They supposedly loved each other, and Sumner proposed to her and gave her a nine-carat diamond, which she then started, you know, wearing, and she accepted. She moved into the house. Interestingly, they never married, for, you know, reasons we could speculate about, but um, so she moved in. And then Manuela Herzer was a previous girlfriend who he had met 
while having dinner at Robert Evans's house. Now, Robert Evans could be another book. He's he, he has been a book. Yeah, I think. well, he he's was, been a lot of books. Actually. He's been in a lot of books. He was a major Hollywood producer, now deceased, but he also was as notorious for his womanizing, his wild parties, the philandering, and he introduced Sumner to Manuela Hertzer. She was a blonde beauty from Argentina originally, and they had a a relationship. And he asked Manuela to marry her, and she said no. She had some children from a previous marriage. She later said that was the biggest mistake of her life, but she said no. But they stayed in touch. And I think dealing with him was maybe a little too much just for Sydney alone. And Manuela's house is being renovated. And so she, while that was going on, she moved into the mansion as well and just stayed. So now there were these two women living with Sumner, supposedly taking care of him, scheduling him, getting his medical appointments. And slowly but surely insinuated themselves in to the estate plan, into the trust funds, and were well on their way to securing control of the trust that controlled both CBS and Viacom. Yeah, now say that again, because, you know, we're going to talk about two instances where control was almost wrested from the family. Yes. And the first one was... Marcella and Sydney, which was almost shocking. They take the long-term lawyer that David Andelman. Yes. And marginalize him. Marginalize him. Bring in Leah Bishop. Yes. Who probably Holland and Herzer had brought in and actually were on their way to, they had already arranged for him to sell 200 and something million of CBS stock. Yeah, this is that, this is an astonishing detail because Sumner had, apart from the trust, which controlled these, part of his compensation was stock options stock over the years. He built up a large fortune in CBS stock, and he always told his daughter, Sherry, he was never, never going to sell that. Never, never in his lifetime would he sell it. And then one day, in secret, working with Sidney and Manuela, he sold all of it, and wired the money to them in one day. They each got $45 million wire transfers. That they still own. They could have sold the stock somewhere along the line, but they got $45 million in stock. But anyway, what starts to happen is that the abuse of Sumner and the cruelty of saying your family's not calling you, nobody else cares about you, alarmed the nursing staff who actually went to the L.A. Police Department and reported this to adult services. Yes, they did. They send out an investigator who says, no, they're all fine because Holland and Herzer orchestrated it. Well, this was outrageous because the investigator shows up. The first time he's there, Holland isn't there, and, and the, the staff called her, and she says, don't let him in. So then he came back another time. This time, lawyers were there. Sydney was there, standing around. And the only person they interviewed was Sumner, who could barely speak at this point. And they were hovering over him, making sure that he said exactly the right things. And so that that went nowhere. But I think readers will be, you know, appalled when they see that we got previously undisclosed affidavits from most of the household staff. Now, these were sworn documents that were submitted in a trial, but not made public. And it describes in graphic detail what was going on in there and what these women were doing to him or in the case not doing to him. And it is. It is heartbreaking and upsetting. So they were reporting for a while to Sherry Redstone what was going on, and it was too upsetting for her. 
she said, I, the you know, nursing staff the nursing was staff, reporting yeah, to her. Secretly, because yeah. they knew if, if, if they if, did, they were out. If they were caught, they were fired. And, and they had one confidentiality agreements. Yes, they yeah. did. Everybody was sewed up, so they couldn't talk. But she finally said, you know, I can't, I can't bear this. And so please communicate with my son, Tyler. So Tyler took over that role, monitoring what was going on in there. But you know, this raises this whole question of of elder abuse, which is a you know is a significant problem in this country. And this is this is the most vivid illustration of it I think I've ever seen. And James, you know, without going into further detail, which people have to read the book, Holland ends up turning against Herzer, and there's another character who comes into it. It's just like its own (laughs) insane story that just shows that greed is greed. There's no loyalty. But Shari ends up getting rid of both of them, although they did walk away with probably $150 million. They have at least... $150 $150 million. Yeah. And they probably have many millions more than that. And yes, even though there were various lawsuits filed against them, there were efforts by Sumner and through to his family to try back. to get the money back. None of that really went anywhere. And I think Sherry Redson decided, look, I just want these women out of my life. I don't want to be litigating with them. I don't want to communicate yeah. with them. So what? They have $150 million. It's worth it to me to just put this behind us. They settled it for nominal amounts. So yes, they have an, they have, they're immensely rich. I mean, they both now parade around or in the society pages as these so-called philanthropists. Philanthropists. They're on boards and, you know, they have these, like, biographies, which, by the way, don't make any mention of Sumner Redstone, which is where the money Yeah, I mean, it really, when you read it, when you're done being appalled, you feel sick. You feel, (laughs) or I felt sick. So Sherry now has reluctantly come back into the role that, a, take care of her father, makes great efforts to take care of him, read to him, take him out. And as we talked about, there was a cruelty about Sumner to Sherry. So there's, at this point, Viacom and CBS are separate companies. Right. Viacom is not doing that well. CBS is doing quite well under Leslie Moonves, who's running it. And around this time, Philippe Dumaine. Domal. I believe that's how he pronounces okay. it. Okay. Well, you're going to be better at that. <laughs> say, say his name again. Domal. D-A-U-M-A-N. Domal. And he came from a French background. Okay. So he was running Viacom. And Sumner had said, he's my successor. So there was all this sort of bad blood between Leslie Moonves as the head of CBS the head of Viacom, and Shari wanting to get these things merged back together. So we've got her back in the game, and we've got a lot of disparate interests. So now it is the beginning of the Me Too movement. Ronan Farrow writes a, you know, scathing article about Harvey Weinstein in the New Yorker, and then he gets a call from Ileana Douglas, Mm -hmm. who says, we've got to talk about Leslie Moonves. So Leslie had done, I say this like I know him, 
But he had done a very good job at CBS. The numbers were really good. And then this intrigue starts about how salacious is his behavior. What did you learn? Well, a lot. I think it's, I should point out here that, so Sherry Redstone came into this situation. She solidified the relationship with her father. In theory, she had a good deal of power now because her ailing father and she were now aligned and they, they were controlling shareholders. But Sherry, this wasn't all that long ago, but Sherry was still stepping into a media and entertainment world that was almost all men and many of them aging men of a certain generation who saw women of a type. Of a certain type, yes, who, you know, women were there for their pleasure and amusement, and, you know, they didn't really give it much more thought than that. So she came into a world that was very hostile and was constantly suspicious of her, underestimated her, did not give her the benefit of any doubt whatsoever. Were informed by Sumner also humiliating her and treating exactly. her bad, like bad, bad role modeling. Yes. I mean, he'd always said such bad things about her. So they were, you know, primed, you know, not to give her much credit, I think very unfairly. But anyway, so the, the Me Too thing suddenly burst on the scene. And Sherry was the one who first heard, apart from the fact that this woman had called Ronan Farrow long before any article, Sherry heard rumors. She was at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, January of 2018. She heard rumors about Les Moonves. She reported that to other board members at CBS, and the CBS board conducted an investigation, which was a joke. Again, they hired a, a lawyer, a, a man who had represented the independent directors, all men. And that saga is, that's going to make people's blood boil. Mm. I mean, it was such a cursory They interviewed Leslie Moonves, and he said, no, none of it's true. And that was the end of the investigation, right. well, basically. He, well, he did mention two examples, which he says they were consensual, so it didn't matter. But he did mention two examples, and he said he knew the names of the women. The investigators didn't even ask him their names, let alone, like, get their side of the story. I'm thinking as a journalist, like, yeah. what? This is an investigation. And so the directors then said, he said, no, you don't have anything to worry about here. He's fine. And they said, well, you know, what did he tell you? And the, the lawyer said, well, I, you know, you, you don't really want to know. You know, I don't, I don't think you want to go there. And they, they just, okay, fine. It was like, oh, my God, nobody wanted to actually talk about sex. Anyway, so that thing they was, just wanted to have So they just closed <laughs> the whole thing down. They said to Sherry, don't worry about it. Not, there's nothing to be concerned about. And she kind of said, well, I hope you're right, you know, because it doesn't sound like much of an investigation to me. But that was it. She didn't have any and ability. And she was marginalized. I mean, they they were assuming she was out to get rid of him, which she wasn't. She was not. Yeah. No. She, but he was very suspicious. She did use the, the power of the trust and her father to get rid of Philippe at, at Viacom. And so Les Moonves was very worried that, oh, his turn, his, my neck is on the chopping block next. And he wasn't about to let that happen. And he had ve these very loyal board members on there. So anyway, so that, that, but then the thing went on. And finally, Ronan Farrow did come out with an article that had six women, including Ileana Douglas, in the story, accusing him of highly inappropriate behavior. The article did not have either of the incidents that he had disclosed, actually. But nevertheless, there was enough there. There was huge uproar. And astonishingly, the board— The board was fine. The board said, oh, oh no, he could—you he, know, he, I mean, Sherry and her—she had two board allies by virtue of their power of shareholders. 
they were the only ones who said we ought to put him on leave. I mean, they didn't say they had to be fired. Just put him on leave while we investigate this. And the other board members said, oh, no, 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 he can keep going. You know, this is all old. And, you know, Arnold Copelson, who was a uh, board member and a very— He particularly annoyed me. <laughs> he was the uh, unbelievable. I mean, we got—we were able to get, like, notes and minutes of the board meetings. And was, we got an astonishing trove of documentary evidence to backlog this up. Because I've never, as a reporter, had the ability to see exactly what was going on in a boardroom the way we were in this case— and the, the things they were saying were just astonishing. I mean, Arnold Cobleson, who was most famous for winning an Academy Award for Platoon, said something like, oh, we all did that, you know, mm. so who cares? You know, it was all old. And he could have disclosed the fact he knew about this other incident involving a doctor who had been assaulted by Moonbez. He didn't even bring that up. In fact, he tried to, like, like suppress this. So, James, I want to I wanna divert a tiny bit here because I think it ends up— really coming into play. Your book does a brilliant job describing what was going on in the CBS boardroom, which, based on my experience in boardrooms, probably happens a lot. You know, you talk about how Leslie Moonves orchestrated these board meetings. Like, literally, no one would speak that they were highly scripted that when a new independent female board member was recruited, a woman by the name of Minnow from Harvard Law School, and she asked for board orientation process, which is pretty standard today, or should be, and Leslie Moonves said, no, we don't do that. You, you, You don't do that. So it's important, I think, for the conversation, for people to understand the degree to which he was protected on this board by either their own greed or, you know, whatever herd mentality, groupthink, but they were in lockstep with him. So we've got two things that happen that don't seem to bother them. One, the New Yorker article by Ronan Farrow, which talks about six people. But the one that's shocking to me is... I don't know if that's her real name or not, but in the book, you talk about a doctor that specialized in diabetes and saw Leslie Moonves at the behest of another client who was also diabetic. He actually, well, you're going to describe what actually happened with her. Kopelman knows this because Ann Peters, which is her name in the book, told him, and even that wasn't enough to trouble him. So share with us that story. Well, this, is a, this was a shocking story. He had arranged to go in early before any other patients. Like it was like he seven was, like, in the he morning. Was get, yeah, he was getting the VIP treatment right from the get-go. And, and Peter is one of the most prominent diabetes doctors in Los Angeles, was examining him. And, I mean, the details are in the book. I, you know, people can read. I mean, they're shocking. They can read what happened. But he sexually assaulted her. And, and then, there's and when no she, notion of consensual there. Oh, there's a no, doctor no, and no, a patient. No. She was horrified. She rebuffed him. And even the, after that, can we say this in, 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 a, in an interview? I mean, he went over and he ex, had exposed himself at this point, And he went off into the corner and he ejaculated in front of her. I mean— Like in the doctor's office. In the doctor's office. 
can you can you imagine? And it I, wasn't a sperm donor or anything. No, 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 <laughs> definitely not. The, the, those the sperm donor figures in this story too, but the, the, there was nothing like that there. And then afterwards, when she, of course, she was horrified because she went, to, she the went to the hospital to say, "What should I do about it?" And people were saying, "Wait, oh well, now he's a VIP. You know, there's not. We don't want to do, make any big stir about this." I guess it was just kind of accepted as as the way it happened. And that story eventually came out. But there was, and, and that was very significant. It came out later, and I think it particularly made a huge impression on Sherry, because she knew, and Peter by, and Peter's by reputation, knew she was a, you know, she wouldn't be making this up. Yeah. And, but I, I just want to mention another, what really did him in. Yeah, this is a story that I feel like comes out of a 1950s film noir. Film noir, noir exactly. <laughs> One of the incidents he mentioned, not in the New Yorker story, but what he, he mentioned that first interview was a young actress named Bobby Phillips, absolutely beautiful young woman from originally from South Carolina who came in and there was, again, in the book, there's a graphic description of what transpired, somewhat similar to what happened with and Peters. And she was extremely upset about it, ran out, you know, she said she never wanted to see him again. You know, she was upset. She was throwing up. I mean, it was a horrible incident. But many years had gone by and her manager knew Les Moonves and he knew about this incident from when the time when it had happened. Now suddenly the Me Too movement is in effect. And so the manager calls up Moonves. Well, let's just the manager was like no longer a well-known manager, sort of hard on his luck. I could like picture his office of yes. even, you know, it was like classic. So he now sees a fabulous opportunity. So I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna have you hold right there okay, for a minute. Fine. We're gonna come back to that. Okay. So we get to a point where the CBS board has figured out a way to stop. Sherry from forcing a merger or controlling CBS and Viacom. Right. I think it was Martin Lipton from Wachtell who mm-hmm. came up with this brilliant, actually a brilliant idea. It is pretty brilliant. To issue a stock dividend instead of a cash dividend, which would effectively wrest control from the Redstones. Yes. It right? would have taken their controlling vote and made that a minority vote by giving all the other shareholders this so-called dividend, which was consisted of votes. Right. So now I call this moment here, I call it the ultimate gunfight at the OK Corral. (laughs) You've got this stock dividend ready to be granted. You've got Sherry ready to file a change in the bylaws to say it required 90% vote to declare a stock dividend. You've got this down-at-the-heels agent. You've got the Me Too movement, you know, sort of enveloping Leslie Moonves. What brings him down? Well, to to mention that dividend and then the the lawsuit, it it made major news at the time that the CBS board voted for CBS, the corporation, to sue— Sherry, Sumner, and the Redstone family to block them from exercising their power to prevent this from happening. That was like open warfare. No one had ever seen anything like that. But then when it turned out that Moonves had all these secrets in its past, of course, I personally, one of the mysteries I could never understand, why, how, and why would you go to war with the leading shareholder and file a lawsuit when you you know the risk is your past is going to be scrutinized 
intensely. And so, so James, was that, sorry for interrupting, because I, what I couldn't figure out, I mean, Mumfez is not a stupid man. No, of course So not. was that hubris, stupidity, or he felt like he didn't have a choice? I think he was backed into a corner mm-hmm. because this thing was moving along and people saying, yes, let's do it. This is a clever way of taking control. And there is a dramatic sequence in the book where you see him having second thoughts and trying to wriggle yeah. out of it and saying, I can't do it. I'm going to be tortured. Sherry's he's gonna, talked out of it. He's talked out of it by his fellow board members who, of course, don't know or don't believe that there's anything that he has to worry about. And they're counting their own money. And they're counting their own money. And so they're, they go over the waterfall there and they actually file the lawsuit. All this was done secretly. Sherry knew nothing until the lawsuit was filed. And there's a dramatic scene where, where she actually finds out. But meanwhile... As this is all happening, this agent for this this young woman phones up Moonves. Now, this he's a down-at-his-heels manager. He's not a big Hollywood figure, hotshot. He's pathetic. He's kind of pathetic. Yeah. And Moonves immediately returns the call. Now, right there, you know something is fishy is going on here. And so the manager quickly realizes he has leverage because he knows what happened with the— Bobby Phillips. Bobby Phillips. And he says, oh— you know, Bobby would like some work again. You know, many years have gone by, but uh, she's kind of, you know, not acting anymore. But suddenly now, you know, she'd like a part. Let's, you know, let's look at some pilots here. What can you do for us? And it's never quite explicit, but they're like, huh, we got all these texts and emails. And again, I've never had this and kind of— And there were like dozens and dozens. He oh, was telling them, oh, he spoke to him like two or three times. Yes, and they ultimately found— over 400 texts and, texts and emails showing, con- I mean, they were almost every day they were talking about all this. And Moonves, although he's trying to resist while also keeping everybody quiet, clearly he keeps going, you know, does more in this. He calls the casting director. I mean, ultimately, they did. They did offer her a part. They didn't require her to audition. They didn't make her submit a tape. They offered her a part. And that's where suddenly... We're beyond just Me Too. We're now, he's using the corporate resources, the head of casting at CBS, to silence a potential accuser. Now, I don't want, know what you want to call what the manager was doing. The lawyers called it extortion. I don't, you know, yeah. he said, look, this is what managers do. We try to take advantage of every bit of leverage we get. I, you know, let readers decide that. But James, but, sort of classically, it was the cover-up that did exactly. him in, rather than... All those women with all those salacious stories or his secretary whose job was, you know, sexual favors at lunchtime or dinner or something, that it was the cover-up that did him in with this two-bit agent who who sort of got him dragged into this cover-up in a way that, I mean, really, that was almost like I kept hearing the dramatic music of this, like, agent. I mean, no, you can see it gradually, <laughs> gradually. Like the noose is tightening around Moonves. And yeah. you think, oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And then he does it. And and you're absolutely right. It's the cover-up. Because for the lawyers who were ex- investigating, and this we have the minutes of all the board meetings, the board, you know, felt, rightly or wrongly, that the sexual abuse had happened long in the past. Most of it prior. To Julie Chen, who is current Yes, prior wife. to Julie Chen. However, I can't resist mentioning he did admit to some other things, including the fact, which I found it, again, we say, what's your jaws dropping? My jaw dropped. There was a woman on the CBS payroll whose job 
was to administer oral sex for him in the office. In the office. In the office. And that was her only job. Well, I get she must have done something else. I mean, but the people around her. So imagine how everybody knew that. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. But he he confessed this. And that was recent. That was, mm, I don't know how recent. I'd have to look back at the notes. I don't know if that followed his marriage to Julie Chen or not. My my general sense is he didn't do anything after he married Julie Chen. But, I mean, still, (laughs) again, this is a use of company. You can't make it up. It's the use of company resources for an absolutely unacceptable self-indulgence. I mean, there's no business purpose there. So when the board heard about this stuff, the cover-up with the manager had just happened, and he'd been lying about it. So he was lying to them and the investigators, and that was the death knell. At about the same time, they had decided they had to get rid of him. At about the same time, Ronan Farrow came out with another article with six more women in it. Six more on top of the— On six. There were 12. Ronan Farrow revealed 12 different instances eventually— and that was the final straw. They rushed out an announcement he was leaving. Although he sued them to get $120 million in severance, you know. That was in the headlines every day. Yes, constantly. But he was he was finally out. So at that point, Sherry had gotten the women out of the mansion. She had gotten Philippe Dumont out of Viacom. She'd gotten Moonves. And the lawsuit, of course, collapsed immediately. So that whole thing fizzled out. This stuff was within weeks or months or days where they were about to declare the dividend, get it approved. The lawsuits were going on. And then this happens with Moonves. Right. right. I mean, without that, they might have gotten they away with have. it. I mean, the, I mean, it's unclear. The CB, it's, it was an unprecedented lawsuit with profound implications because— so many companies today have this shareholder situation where the voting power is held by shareholders who do not own a majority of the stock. All the big tech companies are like this. The founders kept the voting control, just as the Redstones had voting control, even though they did not have an economic majority so, of James, the ownership. So, uh, James, why, why do you think, I mean, you covered this stuff for a long time Why isn't it that the SEC allows that to happen when it is presumptively likely that shareholders become collateral damage to the whims of a controlling founder? Like, why isn't that something that is getting attention for potential conflicts? Well, I think there's no question that when you separate the voting control from the ownership, you're asking for trouble. Right. And I agree with, I agree, the SEC needs to regulate this more intensely because the market is not doing it. You know, you could make the case, I'm sure somebody from the SEC could say, well, look, don't buy the stock, don't get involved in a company like that. But that's expecting too much out of so-called shareholder democracy, which I think you know, is honored in the breach. Shareholder democracy has not proven a very effective means. It's The shareholders are too diffused. There's nobody to organize them. There's no one to educate them. And they're no match. They're no match to a board. To a board. And then the high-powered lawyers that the board hires and which the company pays for. I mean, the shareholders don't have the resources to go out and hire Wachtell Lipton and Marty Lipton and come up with some elaborate plan to protect them. So there's 
no question that I think vividly illustrated in this story is a failure of corporate yeah. democracy. And the, you know, I do believe, I mean, again, we got the documents, the notes, the minutes to, to have a vivid fly on the wall look at what was going on inside of the CBS board. I've never had as much access, access to another board, but anecdotally, Nothing that happened at CBS is very different from what happens in many other countries. I I totally agree with you, James. I mean, to me, among the many virtues of this book is that being a fly on the wall, seeing how corporate governance works or in reality doesn't work. You know, I just think there are a lot of reasons people ought to read your book, but the capacity to control what's going on to the degree that it's controlled. And I agree with you. I think what was going on at CBS, which was appalling, was not unique. So here, here's how I'd like to sort of wrap up our conversation. This is not a high-speed answer, but it's close to high-speed answers. Is there anybody in this book, anybody, James, that's a good guy? Well, I think Sherry Redstone is the is the hero of the I'm story. I'm so glad you said that because that's the way I felt. <laughs> and no question about it, she was she was a reluctant protagonist. She, she was, was forced into this. She was sh- thrown into this shark tank of hostile male aging, you know, cronies of her father, and you know, she just went through one battle after another. I, any one of them would have been enough to drive, you know, a many people person. out. And she just kept persevering. I mean, maybe she got that from her father. I don't know. I, the very end of the book, his his closest his funeral. says, you know, you proved your metal, Sherry. Mm-hmm. And I think metal is the right word. You can say whatever you want about her. She had metal and she kept going and she ended up prevailing in the end. So clear. And, and, and you know, by the way, she was a nice person. There's a, there's one of those women who not, not, Manuel or Sydney, but there was another woman Sumner took up with who seems to have been a very nice person. And she was in the car once with Sherry, and Sherry said, look, I, I don't know what your relationship is with my father. I said, but I just have one piece of advice. Always be honest with him. You know, stand up to him. Speak your mind. Mm-hmm. Don't let him roll over you. And she later said, of all the people around Sumner, Sherry was the only person who was ever nice to her. Mm. And so I think, yes, there is there are good people in here. And then there are uh, the grifters and the hangers-on and the people trying to take advantage of it. Oh, my God, that cast goes on so long, I couldn't even know where to start. Yeah, and, you know, the one, as a pop psychologist, just thinking about Sumner's mother, Sumner's relationship to Shari, and then at the end of the day, you know, to oversimplify it, you think, Gee, people just want to be loved and heard. I mean, I know that sounds <laughs> yeah. absurd in this drama, but yeah. you just think of Shari at her father's funeral, and you just think, you know, she just wanted him to say, I'm proud of you. Yes, exactly. I think it's very touching, and I think, again, to her credit, but it's also revealing, I think, you know, she's she's immensely wealthy, and she was all of her life, really, but that's not what she cared about. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, you know, she let the women keep the money, you know. That wasn't Yeah, it's $150 million, but, you know, I mean, her father wanted the money back, but she didn't really care. So what's another $150 million to her? Just get him out of here. She has all the money she wants. She was, she's probably the, you know, there's so much greed in this cast of characters, but she didn't care that much about the money. And again, it's so clear that she cared more about 
love and, and her family and and carrying out her father's wishes. Yes, and establishing, you know, a legacy that would recognize what he truly did accomplish. So I think it, that part of it is very is very moving and 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 quite touching. So who's a bad person that you're <laughs> furious they got away with what they got away with? I mean, this could be a long list. Pick your top one. Well, I I mean, I have no <laughs> who am I to judge, but you know, the fact that both Moonves and Domont for very different reasons, were so ill-suited for those jobs and walked out of there with vast fortunes. I mean, in the last two years alone, CBS paid Les Moonves over $70 million in compensation. And that was just two years. And his office in... Yeah, in the office. And then when Domont left, he got this big settlement. I think, well, it's, it's in the book. Maybe it's another $80 million. That's on top of all the money and stock options, everything else they earn, it is disturbing. And again, I think it goes to the failure of shareholder democracy, that people who behave so badly, both from a business perspective, but in, in, in Mumez's case, he was a, he was a much admired and brilliant Executive. businessman in, in, in many ways, but on a personal level, behaved so badly that they're now swanning around, you know, Palm Beach and Beverly Malibu. Hills. And Malibu, you know, retreating to their, you know, many multi-million dollar estates. And people have told me, you know, they'll be back. You know, don't, you know, the memories don't here are short. Them. Don't underestimate them. And Hollywood's a small town. And these people did a lot of favors for people on, along the way. They're going to be back. So I don't know. I think it, I think that is, you know, it's unsettling. It does make you doubt what I always want to believe in, that, you know, the arc of time bends towards justice. Well, Maybe we'll not. See. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. And, then, and then, of course, there are Sidney and Manuela, who have, you know, their 150-plus million between them. And, you know, again, I say, who am I to judge? But, you know, <laughs> what was going on there? I, you know, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, that's right. So, two more questions. What, if anything, I mean, the whole thing surprised me, but you're a journalist, you've been around for a long time, you've seen a lot. Was there anything that surprised you? <laughs> well, so much did. I mean, I'm glad I had a co-author, especially because the pandemic was going on, because to discover this by myself and not have anyone to like talk to about it would have been torture. Mm -hmm. Because Rachel and I, we were on the phone like every day and I would find something, I'd say, Rachel, can you believe this? Or Rachel would call me and say, I just learned this or look at this document or we just got this treasure trove of stuff. And like you said, your jaws were dropping, our jaws, jaws were dropping. We were so, I'm so glad we had each other to kind of exclaim to and say, oh my God, I can't believe this. It is, parts of it are stranger than fiction. You know, we didn't talk too much about it, but the way the the blow up in the mansion, the way that happened is so, like, I never could have made this up. Mm -hmm. And it's startling that it came so close to going the other way. If exactly. That, if it had not been for this bizarre drunken night at a wine bar in Beverly Hills, I mean, I mentioned in the epilogue, Sydney and Manuela could be striding around the Sun Valley Conference today as the owning, as the owning controlling CBS shareholders of the what's now Paramount Global. 
Yeah, I, I mean, mean it was hanging close. by a thread. They came very close. The, the closeness of both those moves. I mean, the CBS, the move where CBS would have done that and wrested control from the Redstones, you know, wouldn't be as shocking as Marcel and Sydney as a result of control, cruelty, ending up controlling it. And they almost did. I mean, we did. We haven't talked about some of the sub characters like. Bishop or Abrams or other people that were around sort of compromising their principles, trying to figure out who was going to be the winner and where to put their loyalties. I mean, the I have to believe this is picked up for some adaptation, your book. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say too much. It's kind of in, in the works. Okay. But yes, right. there's been a lot of interest. There's a lot of interest in Hollywood. There is, I also will say, there's some trepidation because these are of, of potential people, lawsuits. Yes, and there are, and these are living characters and, and deep pockets. And Sherry Redstone, I think, is the hero of the story. But nevertheless, she's she controls a company that owns one of the leading Hollywood studios. And you know, frankly, some producers just said, "Look, we're not, we just can't touch this. Yeah, it's too hot. It's too radioactive." So. But we are. There is a lot of interest. I think probably something will happen. I hope so. So, two last questions. What do you think the reaction to the book's going to be? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, there are different audiences, but it's it really does lift the lid on how Hollywood, I think, really was working mm-hmm. in in, the, in recent decades. And do you think that's really in the past? No. <laughs> I wish I could say that. I mean, I, I do think the Me, me Too movement— I'm just noticing you were using the past tense. Yes, because— I mean, just for example, we were investigating a lot of issues, and of course, it was in a Hollywood context. But you know, after Weinstein and after Moonves, women are still afraid, yeah, to come forward. And we interviewed women. We couldn't put it in the book because they wouldn't. They would, in the end, they we, they yeah. wouldn't. We yeah. know a lot more than is in the book. Yeah, and we could not persuade people to come. And I, they're still afraid. They still fear their feel their careers are going to be ruined. And added to that is. There's a cadre of people out there, I would have to say, heavily male, who feel the Me Too thing went too far. Yeah. And that people got convicted. There was no due process. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that all it took was an accuser to raise their voice and your career was ruined. And they're angry about that. And they don't, you know, there's a there's kind there's of a, a counter, you know, movement. It's out called the there. backlash. The backlash, James. exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm worried that. I do think things are better. I believe that, but I, I detected enough in this work to know that we're a long way from people feeling yeah. comfortable, and that this kind of stuff has not has not stopped. And the challenge is right. It's not fair that some men get convicted without due process, and somebody just saying something could derail a career. So there's maybe an over pivot, but to suggest that the bulk of the problem is the bulk of the problem. And, you know, think about it. you got a single mom with kids and something's going. Is she really going to call somebody out and go up against a CEO or an EVP or a share? No, no, they're not. No. And also, I, you know, I detect for some women, they, you know, I feel bad about this, but they, on some level, they're embarrassed. Absolutely. And they feel, you hear that a lot. They feel, I should have stopped this. They feel ashamed. They're ashamed. And they don't want other people to know about this. And they, to some extent, they blame themselves. 
which they shouldn't. No. But they do. And I, you know, I... I feel that breaks my heart when you see that. Because you see how it happens. They think, well, I did go out with him or I did talk to him afterwards or whatever, like, little innocent thing that they did doesn't mean they have the right to be assaulted. Exactly. And you'll see in the book, you know, there are some characters where you see them struggling even now and feeling bad about what happened and and second-guessing and wondering, you know, should I have done this? I mean, people will say, well, why did you go have dinner with Sumner? And, you know, and it's it's more complicated complicated. than that. And when somebody is that rich and that powerful and in that position to make or break your career, yeah. I don't, I, you know, again, I, I say, who am I to judge? I, mean, I don't humans. blame them. We're human. Right. So, James, what do you hope the impact of the book will be? Well, I think on several levels, I hope it's going to empower people who are doing the right thing in this mm-hmm. business. It will empower women, both in on the business side. I hope they'll see what Sherry had to go through and, you know. And she won. And she won. And, you know, that's going to inspire some people. Um to do the right thing and tell the truth. I hope it's going to, you know, reinforce the idea that we still have to keep monitoring the workplace, that this behavior can't be tolerated. And I guess most of all, I hope it's going to lead to better, you know, stronger boards of directors, more diverse boards, more women, more more diversity on boards, and more independence by the boards from the CEOs who won't just swallow whatever the CEO tells them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm naive to hope that's going to happen, but I... Well, that's, I that's don't what know. I hope for. I, you know what, James? I I've been on publicly held boards. I've watched how easy it is to, if you want to be the one objecting to something, to think you're wrong and they're right, and see, you know, it's it's so complicated. But I, you know, in closing, there's a couple things I'd like to mention. One is, I just, as I've said, think you and Rachel have delivered with this book just an incredible read just uh, just you. a great read you know <laughs> if you're not even interested in it's just extraordinary two is i do think that your yours and rachel's journalistic approach to things you know i hope for the book the same thing as you do that it will will give people courage to yeah, I think there's room to do the right thing. And yeah, right. it's tough. It's definitely tough out there. You know, one of the things that makes me so happy in this conversation, James, other than I'm always happy uh, being in conversation with you, is I came out here really feeling like Shari was the hero, that she stuck to what she considered a set of principles and at great expense— Right. And with great bravery. And personal anguish that she had to go through here. You know, it's it was inspiring to me. You know, it makes me want to meet her and <laughs> and and want her to get out there. I mean, she doesn't sound like she's the kind of person that would go out there and consider herself a, a icon for something. But in many ways, when you read this, she is. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, this is the first... It's my 11th book, and this is the first time I've had a female protagonist. So maybe that right there is progress. Yeah. Well, (laughs) we've been talking with James Stewart, the co-author with Rachel Abrams of the book Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. It is out on February 14th. 
which is probably around when this will air. And I mean, thank you for your time, but really thank you for, again, bringing the kind of dogged research and homework and writing skills to just produce an outstanding book. Well, thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.